It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 25th, 2021, the unfulfilled edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. We launched CityCast Denver this morning, Thursday morning. I'm going to talk more about CityCast next week, but check out CityCast Denver if you're in Denver or love Denver. Uh, it's a daily podcast and newsletter. I am joined by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. And by an extremely jacked up Emily Bazelon of the New York Times <laughs> Magazine and Yale University Law School. I cannot wait for the Emily Bazelon of today's show. Wait, you're totally oh, ruining my expectation. I really am like way too <laughs> animated this morning. It's true. I, it's because I missed you guys. I had two, I have two weeks of like energy oh, to expel. Listeners, listeners, <laughs> buckle up. Watch Here out. Here we go. On today's GapFest, we'll talk about the immigration crisis. Is there an immigration crisis at the southern border and elsewhere in the United States? Then we're going to talk about uh, violence and harassment of Asian Americans in the wake of the murders in Atlanta and data suggesting incidents against Asian Americans have risen dramatically in the last year. And we're going to talk to Professor Claire Jean Kim of the University of California, Irvine, about that. Then we're going to be joined by Alec McGillis to talk about his book Fulfillment, which is about Amazon and Amazon's effect on the United States and the Amazon union fight and what that tells us about the state of America. Plus, what a gaffe on Fox News this week. Did you guys catch this? (laughs) Fox News mocked former Justice Stephen Breyer for writing the majority opinion in last week's landmark death penalty case, even though Breyer resigned from the court a month ago and isn't even sitting. (laughs) Oh, wait. That didn't happen because Breyer is still there in his black robe. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. Emily, I appreciate your smile, <laughs> your benevolent, indulgent smile. I thought that was good. I was like totally with you. I was like, oh, yeah, I really was out of it last week. I missed so much news. And uh, wow. Emily does not have the accumulation of last week's show and the Stephen Breyer narrative <laughs> in that as well. They're getting increasingly more Baroque. Well, they have to because David has to keep it real. <laughs> also, David discovered that I, years ago, wrote a piece called Stop Telling Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Retire, which is like my most, what's that word, ignominious moment on the internet? Because I was trying to make the point that like a bunch of white men like bullying her, sort of berating her into retiring was not going to be effective, but it just says stop telling her to retire. Sure. And so it lives on forever. And my children particularly find it just so wrenching and awful that well, I wrote this piece. There should be. But the thing is, the piece was, as I recall, fine. It's the headline. So 
there we all I think in our past have uh, have been strangled by a headline I, that is I I do not give the cop out for that because Emily wrote the piece so that it would have that particular headline not true and also you can <laughs> yes, you can yes she did you can yes, strategically that story began with the headline I understand that but willfully misunder willfully misinterpreting a headline after you've read the piece is not grounds for blaming her it's just your choice to make the piece about something other than what the piece is about. No, she wrote, she had a headline, which was stop telling Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire, parens, white men, because it will backfire. But she, but the headline was just, she, that headline was deliberately provocative right. in order to, so that people would read it. Right. But it was the 20% extra. Yeah. What I will say is I'm pretty sure on the show, a number of times after that, I said that RBG absolutely should retire. Like it was never that I thought she shouldn't retire. It was about the tactics. That's the only right. Point but the point I'm is, you're make. getting stra- strangled by the headline for not uh, for people thinking that it's a piece that says something else. Yeah, or at least like right. Yes, I also said in the piece that it was a wee bit sexist that they that she was the center of this rather than Briar at the time, since he's only a bit younger. And my children also think that is super irritating. Well, also he has outlived her. Right. So. Well, he, right. Exactly. In the end, <laughs> so. like at the time, I looked at the actuarial tables, and you know, it was like pretty similar because men die earlier, and that was my point. But uh, reality did not um, bear up with my thesis particularly well. In any case, show no, you that's <laughs> not show. even a that's not even a segment. Look at this, <laughs> listeners. Uh, it's like your Slate Plus members. You didn't even have to join. You got a bonus segment. Yeah. All right. Our first topic. Is there an immigration crisis in the United States? There has been a rise in apprehensions on the southern border of the United States in the last few months. And there are now more than 15,000 unaccompanied migrant children in U.S. custody. Republicans are railing against the Biden administration for inviting migrants from Mexico and Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador to come to the U.S., even though the Biden administration has pretty clearly been saying, don't come now. Um, Emily, is there a crisis or is this just a seasonal fluctuation combined with the Biden administration trying to kind of make up for uh, years of rather draconian and chaotic Trump southern border policies? I mean, I think it's a crisis to have all these kids who you know, are not with their parents who need to have a good place to live. It is a seasonal fluctuation. There's also a good piece in Vox by uh, Nicole Naria, my lovely former research assistant who is doing such a good job covering this beat, pointing out that their hurricanes um, happened recently in um, Nicaragua and I think Guatemala and Honduras that have had a you know, really bad effect on local economies. And that's also contributing probably to people coming It makes sense that at the end of the Trump administration, even if it wasn't true that, you know, Biden was going to throw open the doors, that a lot of people who'd waited to come would start coming. It's also in line with the usual uptick in early spring. And also the pandemic is ebbing. So for a variety of reasons, we have thousands of kids to figure out what to do with. And this is a really hard problem. It's really hard. Do you have any thoughts on what to do about it? I mean, I definitely don't think that we should like, you know, treat them poorly um, as a method of deterrence. Like that's, I feel like we did, the Trump administration did that. It was really bad. Um, I guess, and and I want them to be placed with families inside the United States. I think a lot of times um, parents send their kids with some destination in mind because they have relatives who are already here. 
But I think there is a real problem with encouraging this because it's dangerous. And I really worry about the well-being of these kids. Well, so as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong about this. The the reason the there's this huge surge in unaccompanied children is that both the Trump administration and and now the Biden administration have been very, very clear, like families, you're, you're not getting in. But the Biden administration has now said that children unaccompanied will be not immediately like thrown back from whence they came or some not even from whence they came, but will be taken yeah. care of. And therefore, there is a small incentive. And I think it I think it's really gross for people to say, oh, this, you know, this means all these Central American parents, they, you know, they don't care. They're just going to send their kids. They don't even think about the well-being of the children. They just think America's going to take care of them. I mean, that's nonsense. But there is a small, like, sense, like, well, if your child is traveling alone, they may, they may be treated more kindly and more, more welcomed into the United States than if we traveled as a family. There's a specific thing that the Biden administration has done recently, which is part of the Public Health Service Act the Trump administration said because of the pandemic meant you could keep out everybody, including kids. They had been allowing kids in, um, mishandling them, but not uh, sending the kids to Mexico. Then the Biden administration lifted that Title 42 provision. So that is the most recent thing being done with um, respect to kids that that creates this situation you're talking about, David. But I think their solution, one of their solutions is is reinstating the Central American Minors Program, which is for those families you were talking about who, where you have somebody in the States who is legal, there is a process by which they can have their minors who are their minors um, brought into the United States through a incredibly rigorous process that was shut down under Trump, stranding 3,000 kids in the middle of it. And the reason that that might help a little bit is that it it keeps those kids from making the march to the border. In other words, it basically sorts the paperwork before they travel so they know they have somewhere to go. But you do. I think it's the problem with the word crisis is that it's like it's getting in the way of the Biden spin machine. But of course, it's a crisis now, whether it's a crisis of Biden's making and how much he contributes to it is important, of course, because it's politics, but it can be a crisis and not be Biden's fault. You know, it's, um, I mean, he has lifted some of the Trump administration, a lot of the Trump administration barriers, which has created, the Biden people will admit, some sort of a pull. It's very hard to to send the message, don't come. Those Northern Triangle uh, countries are in different states of difficulty. The Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, And so that requires slow, patient foreign policy that the Trump administration basically either ignored or actively worked against. And then you have the seasonal issues. So you have a confluence of all of these things happening. And even the most acutely uh, successful administration would take some period of time to get this thing worked through because the the solutions are short term in terms of the kids who are being held by customs and border protection, which is really the the kind of grittiest, worst housing, as opposed to what Health and Human Services has. But then you have all these other long-term things. And the final point I would make is David Leonard made a good point this week about within democratic politics, there's a question of whether is the position of the administration and the party that we, is it the old-fashioned position, which is strong on border, 
help undocumented immigrants in the United States? Or is there a new posture about what the what America's posture is towards people at the border? Is that shifting? And therefore, the Democratic Party and the president doesn't have a clear position on that? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, there's this, as, as somebody who's like really ambivalent about a lot of these issues, the thing that I find frustrating is the malframing or the the failure to focus on immigration issues where the United States can do things that will be good and make obvious progress. I think the situation in the southern border and the migrate it's driven by economics, it's by climate, by weather, by violence, by drug trafficking, like this confluence of issues. And it's really hard to imagine it being fixed by anyone. But there are issues around like H-1B visas, around encouraging students to come to the U.S., around not persecuting green card holders, around not trying to make life difficult for someone who has a green card and wants to become a citizen, around making it easier to become a citizen. Those are issues that I would really love to see as much focus on as these issues. Now, obviously, there you can look at a bunch of them, and hopefully the Biden administration is looking at those as well. But just it's those are issues where where it's clear like there's, you know, the U.S. needs more migrants, skilled migrants who want to come here and it needs to have families reunited and and not helping that out and not focusing on that is is going to be bad in the long term. The confluence of factors you cited for the cause of uh, the pu- the push out of these countries is Correct. But I disagree that there's nothing we can do about that. Like there was a real disinvestment in giving aid to this part of Latin America during the Trump administration, which I think is really bad. And when you sort of move out globally, I mean, migration is going to be like it already is a huge issue, but it's only going to continue. I mean, the climate crisis, the changing weather patterns, there is going to be such a such a push out of the Southern Hemisphere if, you know, current climate trends continue. And we need some kind of global solution for asylum. And we have never had it. It's always been this total patchwork. Countries really don't adhere to international law in allowing for asylum. And usually what happens in a crisis is you have tons of people go to like a neighboring country that is less wealthy and stable. So, you know, Syrians moving into Turkey or this remain in Mexico policy that the Trump administration put in place, put a lot of burden on Mexico to house all these people who are trying to get to the United States. And I, you know, we were just talking at a granular level about the US and that makes sense. That's our focus. But it's really this like global set of um, factors that that I think matters the most in figuring out how this how there could possibly be a better way. Yeah, no, for sure. And I didn't mean to imply there was nothing to do, nothing to do to stabilize. I just I guess what I was trying to suggest is like, there are things you can do to stabilize, but actually the global trends, like the large scale trends are very unfavorable and undesirable. If you think the climate situation is bad now, if you think a drought in Central America is bad now, wait 10 years. Yeah, It is a situation where we certainly should be doing all that we can to help people stay in the the countries and the communities where they live. But like, it's also naive to think that it's not going to be terrible. And, and there isn't like, (laughs) I don't think that the solution to the problems of migration in, in this hemisphere are everyone moves North 
to the United States and Canada. I just don't think it can work. It won't. The United States is not like the politics of this country are not going to accept that that. But I just don't. But yet there's also the situation, which is that tens of millions of people are going to be at risk and immiserated. And so I don't know how those two things meet. Well, it, it, when you, and also when you talk about the politics, I think what one of the things that's a part of this is that we have to think through the amount of effort it would take for an administration to manage these sets of issues when they show up at the border um, and to be more welcoming. It, it, it may, an administration may be able to stake its capital on adjudicating these questions and making and aligning um, uh, American policy with a more welcoming set of values. So, and that may be what everybody wants. The thing is that it has oppor- there are opportunity costs in time, attention, and political capital that, that affect an administration's policies and, and abilities in, other, in all these other areas where an administration tries to get work done. So it's not just yay or nay on specific policies. There's also a way in which immigration has really affected other kinds of policies administrations have tried to put forward by changing the political climate domestically in the states. I mean, I will just say that I disagree with what you said earlier, David. Like, I think we could have tens of millions more people in this country in terms of the effect on the country. Like, I think it could. I, I buy into the kind of mad Iglesias yes, thesis. I yes. buy into the economic research sure. that suggests yes. that, like, yes. yes, there are costs sometimes locally and costs to particular people. And I see that. And I think we should address that. Like, other low-wage workers, um, often people who recently immigrated are the people who get pushed out of the labor force or lose some jobs to the people who got here last. Um I see that problem, but I also see the research that shows tremendous economic potential. I think you were making a different point, which is about the I, political viability yeah, I, I, of waste. Yes, I 100 percent agree. That this, this is I agree with Matt Iglesias. This could be a country of a billion people. Yes. Okay. Right. Yes. Anyway, just clarifying, yeah. not right. really even. I, I, well, actually, wait, Emily, but, but isn't the, aren't they connected? Which is to say, the world that you want and that you're talking about, Emily, uh, has to jump over the barriers that David's talking about. Totally. And I'm not sure that's possible because I think a lot of times like we all as immigrants or children of immigrants, like we get here and we change our feelings about like pulling up the drawbridge. Right. It's not obvious that just because you got here a generation or two ago, you're really excited about everyone else coming. I also think that we're into in the the world that we're heading into in terms of the climate. I'm reading this really grim climate book, which is maybe making me more apocalyptic than I would. It's just going to make which book. Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a novel. It's actually not that. It's less grim. It's more hopeful, but it's still pretty grim. Um, It makes me just think like the politics are going to get more exclusionary and more nationalistic and more uh, more violent in opposition to those others who seek to to kind of take our space. Can I, Emily? Can I take us back to sort of a more tactical and quotidian question, which is that one of the reasons that President Trump was able to carry out such brutal and, and in some ways, extremely effective policies on immigration, restricting immigration, treating uh, people at the border so brutally, was that the courts gave him a huge latitude. Like the courts basically, there were, you know, moments of restraint by courts here and there, but there, there just was no, there was no massive legal crackdown. And because also, Trump knew that Congress would not be able to act. Like, the courts are always like, well, if Congress wants to do this, they can legislatively change this. But otherwise, we're going to give – we give the president a wide berth when it comes to matters of immigration and, and, the, and the border. Do you think that same thing will hold true for 
President Biden? Will the is there a Biden equivalent where Biden can do extremely expansive things around immigration as an executive, and the courts will give him latitude? saying that, oh, if Congress wants to stop him, they can stop him. Well, I mean, the courts already said no to his 100-day pause on deportations. You know, generally in immigration law, when you're talking about, like, individual case adjudication, people just have almost no rights. Like, immigration law is, like, a, a place in which, like, there's almost no constitutional principle. Like, so pe- there is so little due process, it's, like, really bleak for lawyers who are litigating this. And there is this important rule that the Trump administration put in place that the Biden people have not revoked or rescinded that continues to just give enormous discretion to the president, to the executive, in a way that allows people to be excluded. So I think there are some really interesting questions to watch about how much of the Biden administration is going to sort of self-restrain. And I, uh, yeah, I don't quite know what will happen, but the courts have been very willing to go along with immigration restrictive policies from the president. What I wonder is what the what is the ultimate value at the center of the Biden administration or or politics or American politics in general? So everything now is happening in the wake of correcting the Trump administration's policies, whether it's, you know, sending all migrants into Mexico to live for two years in awful conditions, whether it's dropping all the foreign policy that was in place to do the careful, slow spade work in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, or whether it's changing the Central American Miners Program. Like, all of that is corrective and repairing. It happens in the context of the Trump administration. But then what is the ultimate Biden? So do people think it's a part of an American value to have lots of inflows, either for economic reasons or moral reasons? And and who 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 determines what that is? You know, reunifying families to fix the Trump administration is different than are we a country that welcomes families and and how many and for what reason? And it feels like that doesn't get figured out until... I mean, that's going to be very hard to figure out in and of in itself, but also it, it's it's hard to figure out why you're trying to do all these, re, you know, repair efforts from the Trump years. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, also other benefits, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of certain other shows, and you're supporting the work that we do here on the GabFest and the work that's being done at Slate. It's only a dollar for your first month. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. And super excited about our Slate Plus topic this week. It's going to be a really great discussion, I hope. I'm anticipating a great discussion about a, a sports conundrum that Emily and her family faces regarding the rules of basketball and the rules of refereeing and how it impacted a school in New Haven, Connecticut. So go to slate.com slash Plus to hear that excellent discussion today. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. 
So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Two Democratic senders, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois and Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, told the White House on Tuesday they would vote against all of President Biden's non-diversity appointees, that is, those who aren't racial minorities or LGBTQ, until the White House appointed another Asian American or Pacific Islander person to a prominent position or made some sort of commitment for doing that down the road. They threatened that, then they pulled that back. But that was in part a response to some of the real anger, fear, and frustration in Asian American communities following the Atlanta murder spree that killed six people of Asian descent among its eight victims. There are also reports that suggest a huge upsurge in harassment and attacks of Asian Americans in the last year. We're joined by Claire Jean Kim, who's a professor of political science and Asian American studies at UC Irvine. Uh, She's working on a book, Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World, which is a great title. I love that title. Claire Jean Smith, welcome to the GabFest. Can you start by talking about this idea of racial triangulation and how it is important to understand what's happening with racial and class conflict in America? Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So you're asking me about the racial triangulation idea, and that's a, a theory that I advanced in the 1999 article by that name. And in that article, I was really trying to say, when we look at how Asian Americans are racialized and positioned in U.S. society, uh, it's different than how Black people are racialized and positioned. So how do we think through that difference? And I tried to postulate that, you know, Asian Americans are triangulated vis-a-vis Blacks and whites seen as more foreign, but also um, uh, in superior to black people. So there, there are different axes for assessing these different groups. I've actually moved away from that theory. Um, it seems to be taken up by some people right now, but I am moving away from that for my book, uh, Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World, which I'm finishing up right now. And you're moving away from it and toward what exactly? That makes me curious. What I'm moving toward is I'm trying to theorize, again, where are Asians positioned in U.S. society? And the theory is that most of Asian American studies as a field has focused on white supremacy and how white people push down Asian Americans or persecute them through various kinds of laws. And and what I'm interested in is looking at how the racial order is structured in addition by anti-blackness. So how do, what happens when we think about white supremacy as pushing all non-white groups down? but anti-blackness as lifting up all not black groups. And that would mean Asian Americans are sort of pushed down by white supremacy, but also elevated by anti-blackness, elevated over black people. So that leads me to theorizing that Asian Americans have something, a property called not blackness, 
that advantages them, that is sort of like you could think of it as a structural advantage relative to black people, even as at the same time they have not whiteness, which is a structural uh, disadvantage relative to whites. Which makes it, it would seem to me, a highly complex and moving picture to try to uh, look at this because you're not, you're talking about two different groups as those two are changing in real time. Exactly. It's a fluid, dynamic picture. And one of the reasons that I think this theory makes a difference, like what difference does it make how we see how Asians are positioned is my argument is because of their not blackness, which is attributed to them from the beginning, from the time the first Chinese come on shore in California around, around the gold rush. You know, if we think about anti-blackness as a structural feature of U.S. society and think about the society wanting to reproduce that sort of anti-blackness, what happens is Asian Americans are lifted up periodically. There are certain openings historically where Asian Americans are lifted up because that helps uh, the broader society keep black people in their place. It might be defending Jim Crow during the Cold War. Uh, and then there are other examples after that. But my point being that Asian Americans have this fluidity uh, because that helps to sort of nail down structural anti-blackness. So there, there's a great fluidity and sort of um, uh, movement around um, where these groups are, are, except for black people who are always on the bottom and except for white people who are always on the top. Do you think, Claire, I remember one of, there was a professor at my college who I think wrote a book called How the Irish Became White, which I, in a class I did not take, but it, this idea that there were certain groups, and I, I, I seem to remember it being Italian and Irish immigrants who were allowed to become white after not being perceived as white. And as a Jew, I feel like a lot of Jews have sort of made them, like they've strongly identified with their Americanness a generation ago and in, in, in an effort to be seen as more white. Are it, do do Asian are Asian Americans? Do you think headed towards a path where Asian Americans become white, or no? You think they remain as a distinct group? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, Asian Americanists, you know, people who study Asian Americans are very divided on this. Um, there are some people who argue if we look at things like um, certain kind of growth statistics, like intermarriage rates or education rates or residential segregation rates, that we see Asian Americans assimilating more and more with whites. So it looks as though they're going to follow that Jewish pattern. At the same time, I think there's a difference. And one of the differences is phenotypical, right? To the degree that Asian Americans are always um, distinguishable in some sense, and of course, this would diminish with intermarriage, but to the degree they remain distinguishable through language, through appearance, through names, I think that doesn't happen. And the, the, one of the points of my book is that having Asian Americans as a minority group that supposedly makes it on its own, as opposed to being structurally advantaged, which is what I argue, the, to have a minority group that you can say makes it on its own is an incredibly powerful ideological political tool. So there's a sort of functionality for Asian Americans um, that, you know, in being another minority that you can juxtapose to the bad minority, the failed minority that is black people. One of the things I'm struck by in your work and also in some of the reporting about the terrible shootings in Atlanta is the um, the heterogeneity of the Asian American community. I mean, this is like the whole idea of a category of Asian American lumps together people from these different countries. And there's a lot of um, economic diversity and range. It's not true 
that you only have well-off people. And in the Atlanta shootings, there is the are these very wealthy spa owners. Um, one of them was a big Republican donor trying to be, you know, somebody in Republican politics in Georgia. And then you see these spa workers who are at the lower opposite end of the economic spectrum. And I wonder how you think that complicates the kind of politics of Asian American identity and the place of um, Asian Americans in, you know, in American politics. It absolutely does. And I would say that, you know, Asian Americans, all racialized groups are quite diverse, of course, but Asian Americans, perhaps the most so, with so many dozens of different national origins and languages represented. So it's a central theme in Asian American studies to question always what, you know, to pose the question you just did, which is, does it make sense to talk about all of the groups under this, uh, under a single rubric. Does it make sense to say that people are Asian American as opposed to Chinese American, Japanese American? And it does complicate any attempt to sort of argue where Asians are positioned relative to other groups. But at the same time, in my book, I really want to argue that all Asian Americans, even the most disadvantaged ones, have a certain kind of property of not blackness. And that allows them to maneuver in U.S. society in ways that black people cannot. So, for example, when we hear from Asian Americans today, we are afraid, we are not seen as real Americans, you know, we're afraid to go to the house, we feel shunned. These are things that black people can relate to all the time, right? Not just on, during COVID, not just during a, a national crisis, but all the time. So, again, I think even with that incredible diversity, by being Asian, by see, being seen as Asian as opposed to Black, there is a certain kind of advantage that comes with that. And I, just to give you a very quick example, they're not Asian Americans. We are not policed in the same way that Black people are. We are not seen as a physical threat most of the time. I understand this has shifted a little during COVID, but this is temporary and will revert back to uh, the norm, which is sort of a suppressed hostility toward Asian Americans right below the surface. So, Claire, I was wondering about what you think accounts for the most recent attacks, and particularly those against septuagenarians. Right. You know, it's not clear in some of these cases, for example, some of the attacks in San Francisco, whether they were robberies or, um, you know, that had a racial angle to them or whether they were simply racial incidents. So I think the point is that people who are lashing out against Asian Americans right now um, are choosing vulnerable targets, right? So the elderly are vulnerable. The Most of the targets are women. And often the targets are economically dispossessed or marginal communities. So I think there's a, there's a tendency to target people who can't fight back and um, with whom there's the least cost in attacking them. Just going back to, to your response, response a minute ago about that, that you sense that this would be a temporary moment of, I don't know, it was a moment uh, where Asian Americans are, are being targeted or being victimized. Why, why do you think it's a, why do you think it's temporary? And what would, what would cause this cycle to change? I think it's temporary, but then it will recur. So I should clarify that because if we look back at the historical pattern of anti-Asian violence and harassment, et cetera, we see major crests or waves of it, and then it subsides, and then it comes again. And what happens to bring it out again, again, I I said that there's sort of this suppressed hostility uh, and resentment toward Asian Americans, I think, below the surface for a lot of white Americans particularly. And then 
certain events bring it out. So, for example, in the 1870s in California, there was a regional depression or economic contraction that brought out resentment toward Chinese workers, which brought out, which led to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. In the 1940s, it was the war with Japan and the bombing of Pearl Harbor brought out that the, those emotions, and then you know, which led to the internment of Japanese Americans. Um, now, the Japanese Americans had been persecuted in the decades leading up to World to Pearl Harbor, but they hadn't been interned, right? That dr- drastic step of interning them came after Pearl Harbor. In the 1980s, it was trade tensions between the U.S. and Japan that led to the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982 in Detroit, which led to sort of an increase in Asian American activism. And then now, with COVID-19 being a global pandemic, we're seeing the um, the rise, you know, the upsurge in anti-Asian sentiment and action again. So, it's there always sort of baked into American culture, I think, but it comes out, you know, at certain moments. And I think one of the reasons this moment is so shocking for Asian Americans is this is probably the most dramatic anti-Asian hate and violence we've seen since, I think, the 1940s, so almost a century. And I think um, Asian Americans in the time since the 1940s have been invited to assimilate and integrate to a much greater degree than they were before the 1940s. And I think Asian Americans feel particularly um, disappointed and hurt and distressed that after all of these decades of sort of integrating and becoming, you know, moving into white neighborhoods, moving into white workplaces, intermarrying, et cetera, that there is still this sort of um, undercurrent of hostility that comes out under certain circumstances. Can I just jump on the piggyback on that quickly, which is um, American politicians have always bashed China when it's useful um, both parties. That seems like it's going to continue as a uh, political matter, having a, the big threat from China, both real and perceived um, on a geopolitical sense, um, is the backbone of a lot of arguments. Where, How do you think that plays in this post-COVID-19 period where, you know, if the pandemic isn't isn't a threat, the, the, the rhetoric nevertheless continues because of, of China's role in the economy and on the global stage? I think that's a very important part of the picture. So I do think that uh, U.S.-China tensions will be uh, ongoing and will be sort of a dominant feature of the political landscape. I think that within that scenario, there will be particular moments where the U.S. and China have uh, conflicts, whether it be minor military skirmishes or something else, um, or trade you know, conflicts, which could produce more spikes in anti-Asian violence here. There's also conflict with North Korea, right? That's also another source of potential trigger for anti-Asian violence in the U.S. But I, I wanted to also mention in relation to COVID that the violence against Asian Americans that we're seeing is a really interesting contrast to what's, what we're seeing with Black Americans. So Black Americans are not being targeted at, you know, in the way Asian Americans are. But if we look at the American public media's report, The Color of Coronavirus, it's Black and Indigenous people in particular who have been impacted in terms of mortality rates with COVID. And so that really forces us to look at what is, um, how do we think about racial violence in a way that goes beyond attacks, right? Verbal harassment, pushing people down. How do we look at how 
racial violence is built into our social structure. So how is the, you know, particular, to, to choose Black Americans for a moment, their prior health status, their segregation, their exposure to various environmental toxins, their um, entanglement in carceral spaces, all of these things make Black Americans have higher mortality rates with COVID. So how is racial violence actually a structural feature of American society so that we don't just focus on, um, you know, the overt sort of racial attacks, what we call hate crimes, for lack of a better phrase, um, that we're seeing with Asian Americans now. Claire Jean Kim, professor of political science and Asian American studies at UC Irvine. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America is a new book by the great Baltimore journalist Alec McGillis. It's about Amazon, but appropriately, it's also about the whole nation, since Amazon is in some sense trying to be the whole nation, the whole world. And it's about the vast rise in Amazon and the few winners and ton of losers and many in kind of in between uh, as Amazon and the Amazonian way inexorably changes communities around the U.S. It's a human story of the costs borne by actual people, actual Americans in most cases, um, as this the, the way we shop, the way we live, the way we work has changed. So, Alec, fulfillment is, I, I would hazard to say, an ironic title since there are so many more uh, losers and winners in, in what you're talking about. But just tell us what the basic thesis of this book is. Sure. Um, the basic thesis is that we have this extraordinary, these extraordinary regional disparities um, in this country that are, are actually what I set out to write about in the first place. I've been want, wanting for a long time to write about these disparities because I would see them as I would travel the country as a reporter. Um, I was, you know, I'd go out to the Midwest to during the Great Recession, the early Obama years, and to see how, how much a lot of these places were struggling. And then I'd come back to Washington, where I was working at the Washington Post at the time, and just be struck by this extraordinary prosperity, extraordinary disconnect between what was going on there and the rest of the country. Um, and I saw the gap also between between here in Baltimore, where I now live again, and, and Washington, just 40 miles down the road, just enormous gaps that have been growing wider and wider. And I wanted to write about those gaps. And I actually settled on Amazon as the frame for that story for two reasons. One is that Amazon's now so ubiquitous in the country that it's just a really handy way to take you around the country and what we're becoming as a country because they're just kind of everywhere and permeating our whole life. But it's also a, a good frame for the story because Amazon is itself contributing to the problem of regional disparities and regional inequality. One reason we have such concentration of wealth in certain places, certain cities, um, is that we have such concentra concentration in our economy in certain companies in, in certain sectors, not just Amazon, but, but the other tech giants as well. Um, but I, I chose to tell the story through Amazon because, again, it's, it has such a physical manifestation around the country that it's just a very good way at, at, at looking who we are. So one of the things I felt reading your book, I mean, you're really writing about inequality in this wide-ranging, deep way, and I felt very implicated in it because I am definitely someone who shops a lot online. I don't like going shopping. I find it to be a big waste of time, but I also really don't like seeing parts of cities that have stores in them being depleted and boarded up. Like I've found that to be a really depressing phenomenon since my childhood in Philadelphia. I don't know what to do about this. Um, it just feels like the benefits of Amazon and companies like it for consumers are really significant and real. And yet the effects on employees and on 
cities and um, you know the urban landscape are terrible. Yes, well, you are my my ideal reader <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because the 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 book is really above all you know is is sort of meant for readers like you to to reckon with all of this and with what's behind you know the that that easy one click and and that that easy one click has of course grown so much more appealing this past year and so much more uh, prevalent i'm not an absolutist about this i i don't you know I, i'm not out there urging a boycott or anything and i i use amazon when i when i have to as sort of a last resort um but i do think it's really important that especially coming out of this past year that we that we all sort of try our best to re-engage with the worlds around us that towns and cities around us, the communities around us, the businesses around us, the physical world around us, you know, not just in terms of our shopping, but also, but, but also, you know, entertainment, you know, the theater, all these places that are just really reeling after this year and that we're going to lose if we don't re-engage with them. And there are definitely also, you know, structural things that, that we can do politically to, to address the problems that the book describes, you know, notably, stronger antitrust but but at the personal level i do think we we do that we have agency and and i do think it's important for us to think about what lies behind the click and and try as best we can to seek other options i mean there are of course other ways to do e-commerce shopping one click shopping without going through the giant but that the physical world really does matter and and we'd be so much the poorer as as you describe you know with without it so Especially after this year, oh my gosh, this year it's they've, they're the numbers have just got, have gone through the roof. They've gotten so much bigger, and and that was all our doing. We were all we were yes, all kind of implicated in that. Alec, can you talk a little bit about how much bigger it got this year? Not just in numbers, but also in habits. I mean, we're it feels like we all kind of got tattooed with this, and then kind of. Connected to that is Amazon's also expanding, like into the healthcare area, which feels like it's getting would be even more encroaching on our lives. Oh yeah, I mean it's you know before I think before this year, this past year, a lot of people, a lot of sort of you know liberal minded Americans who who liked Amazon for the convenience still felt some compunction about using it. But it was as if this past year there was this massive permission given, this massive from the from the authorities, you know, from the the public health <laughs> um, overlords to 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 just go go that route whole hog, and and people just did with such alacrity, um, and and so you have you know sales up forty percent year over year, uh, four hundred thousand more workers hired, um, five fifty percent more warehouse space. I mean, you see it just viscerally. You see it, you know, if you're walking through <laughs> down your, your streets or your back alley, you see the boxes piled up on recycling day. You see the the constant trucks making the, the, the small, the vans making the delivery. I mean, the very moment that I clicked to send my book into my publisher, a van pulled up outside, you know, the neighbor's house right in view of my, my, my window. I mean, just, it's constant. The highways just filled. Last Friday, I was taking my younger son to a baseball tournament 20 miles up I-95, and I swear there were 20 Amazon trucks just in that short 20-mile stretch. It was, it was really kind of eerie. So, uh, yeah, it's just, we, Again, I think we're not we're not really reckoning with just how much larger it got um, this past year, partly because we all feel kind of complicit in it and we don't really want to talk about it. And it'll be really interesting to see how much those habits stick with us or if or if we fall back somewhat. Alec, one of the things that I think is really confusing in a good way about your work is that the winning and losing you describe tracks sort of with politics it tracks a lot with geography and tracks sort of with politics 
in the sense that there are more of these winners. If you look at who, Amazon employees, am, every Amazon employee I've ever met, at least, is a Democrat. Losers, are, in this case, are often in red, rural, exurban areas. And we have now this interesting unionization fight in Bessemer, Alabama, a red state, as red a state as it can be, but there's a fight to unionize at Amazon warehouse down there. Led by a lot of black people, we should say, who are probably sure, Democrats. Probably Democrats, yeah. But is it, it what I'm wondering about, and, and the issues where, that where, which would move, which would change kind of how Amazon behaves, or tend to be issues that Democrats traditionally would be aligned with and Republicans would be opposed, because Republicans generally want big companies to be free to do what they want to their workers and to, to, uh, to the environment around them. Is a, po- a political solution to any of what you're talking about possible because of these sort of cross-cutting things? Or is the sort of poisonous partisanship that exists preventing anything from, from happening in that way? That's a very good question. The politics of this are really interesting and actually quite different, I think, than on a lot of other issues. And it's why I'm actually, I'm actually kind of hopeful that something could happen. Um, the, what's interesting about Amazon is that while it's universal in its and it's obviously in this appeal to the consumer, it's everywhere. It is especially strong as a company in blue, you know, with these sort of higher upper middle, upper middle class, higher educated, highly educated, big metro consumer. That's a reason why you see all those pictures of Amazon boxes piled up outside New York apartment buildings and in lobbies, you know, these sea of boxes that they, that they, the poor doorman doesn't even know what to do with. So, and what, whereas Walmart still is somewhat stronger in sort of more, rural, you know, white working class, more conservative areas around the country, Amazon is strongest um, and also strongest in its in its political appeal. There was a poll showing that Amazon, you know, is the most trusted institution among Democrats just a year or two ago, ahead of the press, ahead of colleges, ahead of government. And then, and then as you said, a lot of the Amazon workers, uh, the rank and file workers and, and, and drivers um, are, are also Democrats by virtue of being, you know, in many cases, you know, working class, black and Hispanic urban residents. So what you have in a way is what I think of now as the Amazon coalition, that Democrats have become a this a coalition of Amazon consumers, upper you know income, highly educated metro, mostly white consumers, and then the mostly black and Hispanic voters who deliver pack and deliver things to them. That that's that's definitely an awkward coalition and a tricky one to hold together over time, because you might actually see some of those those workers become less comfortable in sort of remaining in this sort of alliance with the very people that who are sort of blithely taking their ordering things from them and, and not even opening, opening the, do- the door when the box arrives. And you actually saw last fall, a bit of a shift, right? Um, among some, um, some Hispanic voters and a smaller number of black male voters over to, over to Trump. The meanwhile you have, so you have this democratic party that is, that likes Amazon, um, generally as, as consumers is very aligned with tech, um, at the sort of elite level. You have tech, big tech has always had, you know, democratic alignment with lots of revolving door people going from the Obama administration to tech. Lot, you know, big tech's always tech, big tech's money has gone mostly to the Democrats in recent years. That's the, that's the natural political alliance. But then you have, um, voices on the left, you know, including Elizabeth Warren and, and, and Lena Khan, who wrote the great Yale Law piece a couple years ago about antitrusts and Amazon. And so you have this real battle emerging within the left, within the Democrats, over what to do about the giants and whether the Democrats need to rethink their sort of natural tendency to be 
cozy with big, big tech as the Obama administration was. So will the Biden administration split from the, from the Obama administration's lax approach to antitrust is a really, really interesting question. And then meanwhile, on the other side, the Republicans are actually on this issue showing some potential for consensus, that they have their own reasons for being um, wary of big tech, which have a lot to do with their constantly feeling sort of discriminated against by, by Google and Facebook, and, and also um, still resentful of Jeff Bezos for owning the Amazon Washington Post. And so they're coming, coming from their own place on this, but, but they, there's a genuine distrust and wariness of big tech on the right as well, and which is is sort of a new thing for, as you said, for Republicans who are generally kind of okay with the big corporation. You might actually see some some potential here for, for some kind of action across the board. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. Um, that is a good segue for the question I wanted to ask you. So I was reading an article in the New York Times this morning about the union drive in Bessemer, Alabama, and what's at stake. And there's a quote from a comms person from Amazon um, who says, as it relates to progressive Democrats in general, we've been surprised by some of the negative things we've seen certain members say in the press and on social media. If there is a progressive company in this country, it's Amazon. Find me another large company paying two times the minimum wage, providing great health benefits from day one, 95% education, reimbursement, safe working environment, and so on. We really think we are an example of what a U.S. company should be doing for its employees. I just, I was wondering what you thought about that. Um, it seemed at odds with some of the stories we've heard about working conditions at Amazon, for sure. And also, this idea of undercutting this union drive is itself, the tactics of the companies have been so aggressive. Um, and I wonder what you think is, as you've been following that, how much is at stake? Oh, so much is at stake. I mean, I think, I think of it really in kind of grand historical terms, you know, going back to the book, really the core chapter of the book, the heart of the book is about the transformation of work, of what work means in, in, in America as sort of told through this place called Sparrows Point outside Baltimore that was home to the biggest steel mill in the world in the 1950s, 30,000 people um, working there. And it has been wiped off the face of the map and has now been replaced by warehouses, including two Amazon warehouses. And people went from making $35 or more an hour there to now making $15 an hour. They had union uh, union voice um, there. Now, of course, they don't. The work now is not, not nearly as dangerous as it was at the steel mill, but it's, it's still incredible incredibly physically taxing, incredibly, incredibly strenuous, and much more sort of uh, kind of atomized and isolating um, and, and, and less, less lacking in, in purpose and meaning. And, but the, they, they got the, the better pay at, at those steel jobs because they organized in the 30s and 40s and 50s last century. Things were much worse before they did that at those, at those mills. And so I really see the question now is whether jobs at, these, at, these, at the warehouses which really have become like the new mass employment places of our time. Um, you know, it's hundreds of thousands more people hired just last year. Um, that's sort of where you go to work right now if you don't really have any other clear option and you just need a job. And if those jobs can be lifted up in a way that those mill jobs were um, across the country, that would be a really big deal. Not, you know, higher pay, yes. I, I think Amazon can pay more um, when Jeff Bezos is netting, you know, $60 billion a year just last year and his, you know, his net worth grew $60 billion in one year. They did manage to pay a couple dollars more early in the pandemic, then they took that away. But it's not just about the pay. It's also about voice workers having more say in the way the work is done 
done in these incredibly high, incredibly high pressure warehouses. There's a reason turnover is so high. If the jobs were so great, people would be staying longer. Um, so the, the stakes really are just enormous. <laughs> You know, sometimes companies try to get ahead of antitrust actions by the government by trying to f solve, fix, or address some of these problems. Do you see anything Amazon could actually do rather than what they may be trying to do as a kind of PR move? Um, as, you know, as far as Amazon being able to head some, some, some antitrust action off, the, the one possibility I've seen floated in, a, you know, in the business press is the, is the notion that they could somehow just go ahead right now and split off AWS, which is their hugely profitable cloud arm, Amazon Web Services, which they opened up in 2006, and it's just been a massively profitable thing for them to, that it's basically allowed them, the problem is that it's been so profitable that it has allowed them both to kind of kind of collect data that kind of, that helps on the retail side, but more importantly, is allowing them to essentially kind of subsidize the retail operation. One reason they've been able to be, be wipe out their competition on the retail side is they, they can kind of take the profits from the cloud side and kind of and move them over that way. That that's one thing that's discussed is is breaking that off, and you can see them possibly um, doing that on their own. Beyond that, um, which would be that would be a very big move. But beyond that, all the the actions that are being contemplated are so thoroughgoing and deep, such as you know, breaking off the the other you know big issue is that you have the platform of the of the of the retail website and them selling on their their own platform against other competitors. And that is really kind of the heart of the matter. And it's hard to see how they could sort of on on their own try to address that um, to, to to stave off action. Um, because it just it's, it's also it's such a deep thicket and it's also interwoven. And it's also just been so profitable for them to to have that kind of that platform Control and then secondly, on the Republican point, um, the 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 opposition to big tech seems motivated, animated, maybe wholly or maybe just in part by the kind of anti-cancel culture, which makes me wonder how interested they are in a lot of what you write about, or is it really they don't like Amazon because it's the Washington Post and they and they don't like big tech because it's they think it's stifling their voices, even though that's an open question. And that that's the aim, that they're not so much concerned about the workers and the, and the economic uh, conditions you're writing about. It's always hard to gauge, you know, how much, you know, a Josh Hawley's or, or some other Republicans um, or Marco Rubio's concerns are, you know, or how genuine their, their move towards sort of a, a more kind of populist, worker-centered um, outlook is. But I do think that Republicans, smart Republicans are aware that there is, there is a realignment underway right now in our politics. We just have, and Democrats don't like to talk about this very much, but the Democratic Party is becoming more and more dominated by highly educated upper income voters, you know, as, as more and more sort of suburban Romney Republicans have kind of moved over to the party. And, and so you could see, you really could see some Republicans opportunistically reaching out, you know, taking action on this front with the aim of actually helping their party's chances. I mean, it's worth noting that the, that the union, there's a really interesting story about the union, um, that's doing the best more organizing, uh, in the Times, yes, on, on, on Wednesday. And it's talked about the fact that the union is actually politically somewhat idiosyncratic. It's actually, it's very kind of faith based union and, that one of the leaders actually said that in of the of the mid south chapter said that he wagered that most of their a lot of their members were actually have actually voted for Trump so things are actually you know 
as we saw last fall, things are actually somewhat fluid um, at the sort of um, lower ends of the income spectrum politically right now. And so you can see some Republicans trying to, um, to make a move on that. Alec McGillis's book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. You could buy it on Amazon. I, you could buy it somewhere but else don't. too. But don't. Probably don't. Go to Indie Books or somewhere yes. else. I'm just saying, that I, I Googled it just to see, does it show up on Amazon? Or has Amazon blacklisted it? And Amazon is glad to sell it. That would be really it. good for Alex book yeah, sales. Yeah, I'm sure he would, he would desperate, <laughs> yeah. desperate for Amazon to crack you. The strange thing is I ordered it from them in February just as a test, and it still hasn't arrived. I got a note a couple of weeks ago saying it would be delayed. There's something very strange going on with my oh. order. Maybe it's, so it's, over, maybe it's sub- sold uh, and they're out of stock. It's that, that, we, we can only hope. Yes. <laughs> they need to get more of it. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Let us go to Cocktail Chatter. When you are sitting uh, in, in contemplation, I don't know if you can order cocktails on Amazon. I'm not sure you can. I don't know if Amazon sells alcohol. I hope not. But you're having chatter and you're talking with your dear ones, Emily Bazelon. What are you going to be chattering about? So I had an amazing reporting trip to New Orleans last week and this week, um, and I just want to tease this story that I'm going to be writing about in the months to come. Um, I got to see the exoneration and release from prison of a man named Utico Briley, who was convicted of an armed robbery when he was 19, eight years ago, and given a 60-year sentence, even though no one was injured in this robbery. And through his own sort of sheer force of will and the efforts of my sister, Lara Bazelon, who was his amazingly fierce advocate as his lawyer, and then the voters of Louisiana. I think, GapFest listeners, would you get a, want to get on the wrong side of a Bazelon yeah. lawyer? I don't think so. Exactly. Not my sister. You would not. Anyway, Utico Briley was released from prison last Friday. And I mentioned the voters of Louisiana as well as Utico himself and um, and Lara, his lawyer, because the voters of Louisiana um, elected a new district attorney in the winter, Jason Williams, and a couple of new judges to the bench, including Judge Angel Harris. And What happened with Utico's case was all about the way those new officials approached their jobs. The district attorney agreed that Utico Briley was innocent and the judge signed the order. And it was really a very moving experience to watch. I've never been a reporter in that situation and um, I will remember it forever. So anyway, that's my chatter. John. What is your chatter? What a great story. I mean, for all the obvious reasons, but also like a great family story. Thank um, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Um, I think of all those poor prosecutors, like just being like me, when I realized that I'm arguing with Emily about something I don't understand. And and I feel, I feel what those poor prosecutors must have felt like. No wonder they capitulated. Or Laura, more like. So I, too, was... Uh, off reporting on something that's coming later, but that's part of what is making me think about this. Andrew Atkinson, who's a um, economics professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, did an analysis for um, that was a part of a Brookings Institution conference last week about the COVID-19 fatalities. And basically, the analysis showed that the the fatalities could have stayed under 300,000 versus the death toll, which is a on its way to 600,000 and maybe at the high end of 600,000. And 
basically their argument is that the if the country had just adopted widespread masks wearing social distancing and testing that the, the deaths would have been under 300,000 and the figuring out of what happened beyond President Trump, who was actively working against those two, which is amazing when you think about it. So three things are identified, and he actively uh, worked against testing because he didn't want the numbers to go up, and he actively undermined the masking. So he's obviously culpable in an extraordinary way, but there are also m- other complex idea uh, reasons that we failed so badly as a country. I think this study is fascinating, but I think more important is that there's a kind of danger to only blaming President Trump. And it'll be really fascinating to see how and if we think about the bigger, larger forces that that caused um, the public health failure. And the other thing, speaking of presidents, is that my paperback came out this week with an epilogue about uh, that was written after the election. So if you haven't bought the book already, you now have an opportunity. Um, I you're talking about COVID reminded me. I wanted to plug your excellent sixty minutes piece about the Marietta schools. So interesting, like to watch the superintendent talk about how evidence based he was, and then there are all these kids in a gym playing right. sports with no masks. It was thank you really well done. So everyone should go watch that. And then to watch him do what nobody ever does, which is basically re- wrestle with that contradiction, on, like live and on television. Squirm, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I th- and and he obviously is, you know, as he said, he he is um, really conflicted about that whole thing. But I talked; it didn't get into the piece. But I talked with uh, one of those seniors he was talking about. Just serendipitously ran into him in the weight room who is getting a free ride somewhere because of the final, you know, and it's his senior year, which is one of the things that uh, Grant Rivera was talking about by allowing sports for those kids for whom it, it is a pathway to a, um, you know, a, a better life. But um, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, the whole team that worked on it uh, are really amazing. And it was a, it was a meaningful piece. All right. My chatter, I've, I've done a last minute chatter change because I I'd forgotten <laughs> the best thing I saw this week, which is a post from Janelle Shane. Janelle Shane is an AI researcher who is so conscious of the when AI goes wrong. She is she collects examples of AI going wrong, and so this is a piece which collects the efforts at pickup lines that these uh, AI algorithms came up with, and they're just so good. <laughs> so I'm going to read some. So this is one from called uh, an AI called Da Vinci. I'm losing my voice from all the screaming your hotness is causing me to do. You have the most beautiful fangs I've ever seen. (laughs) I have exactly four stickers. I need you to be the fifth. I will briefly summarize the plot of Back to the Future 2 for you. (laughs) I once worked with a guy that looked just like you. He was a normal human with a family. Are you a normal human with a family? (laughs) You look like Jesus if he were a butler in a Russian mansion. (laughs) This is one called Curie. Your eyes are like two rainbows and a rainbow of eyes. I can't help but stare. (laughs) Picked up some pretty flowers. Want to smell them? Here, try to take my hand off. Hey, my name is John Smith. Will you sit on my bread box while I cook? Is there some kind of speed limit on that thing? (laughs) I love AI so much. They're so (laughs) Dada. But pretty soon they'll be so good. One of my all-time favorite things on the internet is this video, which I've talked about on the GAFAS probably 12 times, of a robot flipping pancakes. 
And it's a robot learning how to flip pancakes. And at the beginning, it's so bad. And it's so bad you laugh every time it does it because the pancake goes off, you know, like 30 feet away. And then within within like five minutes, the robot has completely mastered a pancake flip, which I, a 50-year-old person who's been making pancakes all my life, cannot do. And it was just, it was, I was like so happy to laugh at that AI, and then, that robot. And then just like clearly coming to dominate. So I'm going to be at a bar sometime in the future trying to pick somebody up. And Tell them their fangs are lovely. The, it will some, always work. Some, some, some robot's going to come along and, and just like have a great line, have a devastatingly good line. Listeners, you have also sent us wonderful chatters this week. Please keep them coming. Tweet them to us at, at Slate Gabfest. And our chatter this week is from Matthew Dix. And it's an article uh, by Philip Hoare for The Guardian. Sperm whales in the 19th century shared ship attack information. It's this fascinating story about how analyzing whalers' logbooks demonstrate that whales, sperm whales, particularly during this time in history when they were being hunted, quickly changed their tactics in terms of dealing with predators in order to survive. Uh, the original predator of the sperm whale was the orca whale. It was the only sort of threat in the ocean. And what sperm whales did in order to protect themselves is they formed groups. They encircled themselves into this into this pod to protect themselves from the orca whales. But this proved to be terrible in terms of defending yourself against whalers because it just allowed these whalers to kill many whales at once. And so over a very short period of time, studying these logbooks of these whalers, they discovered this sort of shift in culture, this, this change in tactic where rather than grouping up, when whalers attacked, sperm whales separated and they would swim upwind so that the ship couldn't chase them because they were all wind-powered ships. It's amazing. It's this idea that this isn't the effect of anything related to, you know, a biological change in these animals over time. It is just culture. It is probably communication is what they are guessing resulted in allowing sperm whales to survive. They're the mammal with the largest brain on the planet. So I guess it's not so surprising. So once again, sperm whales in the 19th century shared ship attack information. It was in the Guardian. So great. That was, that was awesome. great. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week, which is April. Happy April. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We had a Slate Plus topic all teed up, and then I saw a tweet from Emily on Thursday morning, and now Emily's going to bring some sports to Slate Plus. Emily, Watch can you tell out. us what's going on? Normally, me talking about sports is a terrible idea, but in this case, I think I know what happened. So my son, Simon, is on a high school basketball team at Wilbercross High School in New Haven. I'm just going to preface this by saying that they wore masks through the entire season, and there were very strict rules on um, spectating. Almost nobody allowed in the gym. Okay. So they, Simon's team, which is a really excellent basketball team, of which Simon, I will say, is a minor contributor, um, was in the semifinals of, like, this year's league championships on the other night. And I was very sadly at the airport watching on FaceTime, and in the last, like, 30 seconds of the game, Simon's team scored three points, went up by three, and 
It was the end of the game. The buzzer sounded. My husband was like, they won. The kids all went onto the floor. And then the refs called the game back, saying that there were actually 0.3 seconds left on the clock. They restarted the game with 0.3 seconds. The other team, West Haven, passed the ball in and one of their players took a three-point shot and was fouled by our team, got three foul shots, went to the line, and sunk all the baskets. So then the game went into overtime. And then our team lost in overtime. So this seemed like this crazy set of events. And it turns out that there is a rule, and I'm sure basketball fans have already figured this out, that you are not allowed to shoot from the field with only 0.3 seconds or less left on the clock. The only way you can score at that point is if you tap the ball in because it's such a tiny increment of time. And so the refs didn't know this rule and they didn't enforce it. They should never have let the shot go off. They certainly shouldn't have called the foul and given the foul shooter three shots to tie the game. Yet, there is no appeals process, and so the result of the game stand. Um, Simon has been protesting, but to no avail. And um, it looks to me like this just sort of per se rule violation, and it also doesn't make sense to me that after the fact there's no way to dispute the results. But, David, perhaps you disagree. I, ha- I have so many interesting, so many, I don't know if they're interesting, so many thoughts on this, which will include a number <laughs> yeah, of questions. Be the judge of we'll that uh, first of all, that kid who hit three free throws with no time left on the clock. I know! You know, ice in that kid's veins. So, and previously, our team had the same thing had happened. That's how our team had gone up by three. Our team, Derek, on Simon's team, and I'm sorry, Derek, I don't know your last name, same ice in veins. Well, but it's it's different to hit it when your game is tied and hit three to put you up three than it is when you're down three. There's no time left. You have to hit all three. That is okay. Wow. Yeah. That is that is some performance. Um, but uh, did the coach of Wilbur Cross, your team, say anything to the ref in the moment? He did not. Okay. Failure failure to file any kind of timely protest there. Well, that was the thing. The only yeah. way you can protest is in that very second. Like, once the game restarted, New Haven lost its right yeah. to dispute the results. Yeah. Then I would say the other interesting question to me is, there is a point at which you, below which it is understood, you cannot get a shot off. To, but that doesn't necessarily to me mean that you can't be attempting to take a shot and therefore be fouled while attempting to make a shot. And therefore, it's true that you wouldn't have gotten the shot off. But just because you didn't get the shot off doesn't mean I wasn't hacking at you while you you were trying to do this thing, which you were unable to complete. Then how do you get the shooting foul, right? Like one, I mean the because you're trying to shoot, like you, you no, but. But they should have just blown the whistle games over at but, the point three. Well, but, not, well, or what, given them two shot given them two foul shots because they shouldn't have been able to take the shots. That was what the I think this is a philosophical I think this is a philosophical question, which is hmm. that you can say if they just let him take the shot. Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. 
No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.